We're in Psalm 92 this morning, if you have a Bible with you, right in the middle of your Bible, Psalm 92. You know, people talk about living the good life. What does that mean? Suppose you were asked, suppose we're at Starbucks, we're sitting across from each other, and I say, what's the good life? Oh, I know, I'm a pastor, so you, you probably say, ah, oh, the good life, it's uh, devotions, good P&W, praise and worship, you know, a good life is being holy or something, but imagine someone else is asking you and you were more honest, what is the good life, do you, do you talk that way, do you think about that, do you have categories for that in your life, I was thinking this week of different people, different known people, and how they would define living the good life. I think, if you know this author, for Wendell Berry, living the good life is the rural life. It's farming, it's community, it's simplicity, it's going back 50, 60, 70 years. Uh, most suburbanites could use a good dose of Wendell Berry, but I'm not sure that's the gospel. I'm not sure that's truly the good life. To Donald Trump, though, living the good life would be the other end of the spectrum. It's business deals and helicopters and Trump Towers and gold whatever. To Ted Turner, living the good life is acquiring massive amounts of land and doing nothing with it. (laughs) To many Americans, living the good life comes when you retire. So work hard for that. Work your butt off for that. Save, save, save. And as early as possible, get to that, that era of ease and fun and traveling, that era of retirement. It seems like to Americans my age, living the good life is a mirage. It's a lie that we think was fed to us by our boomer parents. To my great aunt, or aunt, however you say it, who was a Roman Catholic nun... The good life was the life of the convent, a life devoted to being good and doing good. A recent Forbes magazine piece offered 10 golden rules for living the good life. You ready for these? First, be restless, ever seeking new pleasures. Be restless. Two, don't worry especially about the stuff you can't change and you can't fix. Don't worry. Three, treasure friendships. Fourth, don't seek superficial pleasures, but simple and true ones. Fifth, master yourself, this Forbes piece said. Sixth, avoid excess. Excess stuff, excess money, excess time doing this or that. Seven, Be responsible. Eight, don't seek prosperity as an end in itself. Nine, don't do evil to others. And ten, be kind to others. And it gives a reason for the tenth one. Why? Why be kind? Because kindness toward others tends to be rewarded. Now the Bible actually says many of these things. It gives us different motivation for them, and and, and God's word is true, and 
Forbes magazine might be helpful at times. But it's funny that there's nothing terribly clever or new here. Much of it you can find in Proverbs. What surprised me, though, with this list from Forbes was how many of these things were stated negatively. Did you notice that? I mean, for being just a a pragmatic, secular formulation of what the good life looks like and how to get there, so many of those ten golden rules were what to avoid, what not to do, how you should limit this, not have too much of that guard against this. Well, many people think that the Bible is like that. Many people think the Bible is all a bunch of don'ts. That the really good life is being set free from those rules, being set free from limits. Actually, the Bible says that it is liberating. It's a book of life. The Bible is not just a book of don'ts. Oh, it has don'ts, don't get me wrong. But it has do's. And it has invitations, glorious invitations. And it has promises aplenty. And it talks about the good life. A good life that was lost, but in God's goodness, through Christ, can be restored. The Bible talks about what the good life is. And sure, it acknowledges pain and difficulty and sin and trouble all along the way. It's a remarkably hopeful book and honest book. In fact, I I think... Better than any other religion of the, of the religions available to you on the market of religions today, Christianity, I think, makes sense of what is hard. It's honest, and yet it's not Pollyanna in its hopeful, hopefulness. In some ways, it's far, far better. According to Psalm 92, this might not sound so good to you, If you're not a Christian, the good life, according to Psalm 92, is one full of praise. From morning to evening, praise. From youth to old age, praise. Psalm 92 says living the good life is one that's lived out before the face of God. It's one that enjoys his presence. It says right at the beginning, we read this already, it is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High. In the Hebrew, Psalm 92 begins with the word good. In like Yoda talk, it says, good it is. Okay. Now, in English, word order doesn't matter much to our sentences. We kind of move things around, and it's either clumsy or it's not clumsy. But in Hebrew, sometimes, not always, but sometimes putting a word at the beginning of the sentence is a way of emphasizing that word, like the way we might italicize a word, put it in bold, underline it. Well, Psalm 92 begins with the Hebrew word for good. Good it is. And then the whole thing will go on from there to describe what is good. So what is good? What does it mean that it's a good thing to give thanks and praise to God? What do we mean by good? Well, hold on to that. Let me come back to that in just a bit. It's kind of a big deal, and it, it needs some groundwork first. But before we even get into Psalm 92, I want to give you a sort of a, 
a bonus point to your sermon notes in the back of the bulletin. You see four things there. Something you can write in before that is a quick note, maybe not so quick, a note on Psalms 90 to 92. How these three psalms go together and they make up a progression. Now, years ago, I noticed that Psalms 93 to 100 have some similar themes, and I would spend a lot of time there. In an older Bible, a Bible that I had for many years, Psalms 93 to 100 were, were sort of wafing away. They were worn. They were tear-stained. There was even, I think at Psalm 95, a drop of blood. I had a bloody nose. I, I don't know that I was crying so hard that I, I wept or dropped blood onto my Bible. I could have been picking. I don't remember. But, uh, but there's blood there. It kind of reminded me, like, yeah, this is home, right there in the middle of the Psalms. It just, that's, it's a place I go to. I know it well. And, uh, and I would see connections from one psalm to another there. Well, more recently, I started noticing some similarities with Psalms 90 to 92. And after some more reading and checking, reading some commentaries, found a dissertation on this, sure enough, there are some connections here. I'm not the first person to notice that. That's a good thing. Get this. Psalms 90 and 91 share 12 key words. Psalms 90 to 92, sorry, Psalms 90 and 92 share 15 key words. And Psalms 91 and 92 share eight key words. And when I say key words, I really mean key words. These are words that aren't common. In some cases, it's a word that's used maybe only once or twice else in the rest of the book of Psalms. That's a rare thing. And they're potent words. They're usually picturesque words. So it's a big deal that there would be key words used in close proximity together when they're rare and when they're potent. Now, I'm not suggesting that Moses wrote Psalms 90, 91, and 92. Psalms 90 does say that Moses wrote that one. Psalms 91 and 92 don't give us anything about an author. I'm not saying they were written at the same time or by the same person. I'm saying that an editor put them here together for a purpose. Psalms were written at first, not like a book, like someone got it done and put it at the end. You know, now we're at 38, and then, you know, a guy writes one tomorrow, and now we're at 39. That's not how it was assembled. It was assembled by editors who who knew these psalms, had read these psalms, who who, who could put them in certain order based on certain criteria, and at times they would put them in certain order based on similarities, things they had in common. Now let me read Psalm 92. And if you've been with us in the last couple of weeks as we looked at Psalm 90, Can you just put your Psalm 90 radar up and try to remember some things we saw there? Lay it over Psalm 92 and see if you see some things that sound similar. Maybe you weren't here in the last couple of weeks, but you know Psalm 90 is still the same. Listen for the similar themes in Psalm 92. Again, verse 1 says, It's good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning. And your faithfulness by night. To the music of the lute and the harp. To the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. 
How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. That though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you've exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You've poured over me flesh, fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They're planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. To declare that the Lord is upright, he is my rock. And there is no unrighteousness in him. Did you hear any similarities? What we've been looking at in Psalm 90? Let me just mention a few. God as eternal is both in Psalm 90 and in Psalm 92. Both Psalm 90 and Psalm 92 deal with old age. Of course, a big one, both of those psalms talk about judgment and what's to come and the fragility of life, the temporary nature of life. Both talk about being satisfied. Psalm 90, verse 14, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we might sing for joy and be glad all our days. And guess what? Psalm 91, verse 16, just to show you a connection there, it says, with long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Satisfy, satisfy. Both Psalm 90 and 92 talk about steadfast love in the morning. An unusual phrase. And of course, God as a dwelling place is both in Psalm 90 and uh, at least two or three times in Psalm 91. But there's a progression that's important to notice too. It's not just that they, they share some wording or, or concepts. There's a progression. Psalm 90 started out with lament and praise. Remember Moses had some, well, some heartache and he shared it with the Lord. We call those psalms lament psalms. Psalm 90 is one of those lament psalms. And like the, the many lament psalms, it has requests in it as well. So lament and request. The problem isn't solved in the middle of it, though, or even at the end of it. Requests are being made at the end of Psalm 90. But Psalm 91 speaks of confidence and assurance. The request that Psalm 90 was making, Psalm 91 is assured of, confident in. Those requests have been answered. And then Psalm 92 is thanks and praise and peace that comes from those Psalm 90 requests being answered in Psalm 91. You see the progression? A happy ending. Let me show you a couple specifics. How one asks for something and the other one answers it. Psalm 90 verse 15 said, Make us glad! Psalm 92, verse 4 says, you have made us glad. Psalm 90, verse 16 says, let your work be shown. And then 92, 
Verse 4 and 5, you have made me glad by your works. How great are your works. Apparently, they have been shown. Psalm 90, verse 17, remember how it ended? Establish the work of our hands. Give it meaning. Make it lasting. Well, in Psalm 91, that work of the hand is described, verse 13, like this. You will trample underfoot the serpent. And in Psalm 92, verse 13, it's describing people in God's plan. God's people who are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish. Verse 14, they still bear fruit in old age. God has established the work of their hands. Now, this is not just a neat observation. This is not just a little factoid to throw on top of the Bible trivia pile. What it means is that there's benefit to reading psalms more than just a psalm at a time. Read several in a row. Read three in a row. Read five or six or seven or eight in a row. Camp out in a handful for a while, for a week. Read them over and over and over again and see repetition and progression. See things get answered. We need this. As one who has spent more time in Psalm 93 to 100 than perhaps any other section of the book of Psalms, I can say it is good to soak in multiple Psalms. The Psalms aren't just like Proverbs where they have a topic and then, okay, next verse. In Proverbs, it's verse at a time sometimes that it changes. In the Psalms, it's not just a Psalm at a time and then the next one, who knows. Sometimes it's like that, yes. But sometimes they're put in a certain order and we should notice that. Okay, now let's focus on Psalm 92, the, the culmination of these three, the fulfillment, the happy ending. It begins with good, as I said, and what it says is good is praise. So Psalm 92 is about praise. I think it shows us four things about praise. The first would be the elements of praise, what goes into praise, verses 1 through 3. One way of describing praise is, verse 1, giving thanks to the Lord. It is good to give thanks to the Lord. We give thanks to the Lord because it's right, because it's good, because it's, it's acknowledging what is true. Giving thanks is the proper thing because he has done great things. His loving kindness is over all his works. All his works praise him. And we should join in the praise of those works by praising him for those works. Give thanks and work hard at giving thanks. Think on what to give thanks for. Describe your thankfulness in new ways. That's what the Psalms show us in other places. Sing praises to his name, it also says in verse 1. Part of giving thanks is singing praises to describe what he has done in praise and in song. The New Testament talks about this. The church of the New Testament is to sing. It's not talked about as much in the New Testament as it is in the book of Psalms in the Old Testament. They had a big hymn book in the Old Testament. 
But the New Testament says the church should use that old hymn book and much of it should carry over. Ephesians 5, 19, it's in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs that we are to be singing and making melody to the Lord with our hearts. With our hearts. Not just with our mouths, but mouths that are reflecting something of the heart. In hearts that are reflecting something of the head, the mind. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, I will sing praise with my spirit, my heart, but I will sing with my mind also. Similar to what Jesus said in John 4, as he witnessed to the woman at the well, she wants to know where are we supposed to worship. And he says, you know what, the time's coming. In fact, it's right now. It's right in front of you. When it's not going to be out, it's not going to be about where you worship. It's not going to be about that mountain or that mountain. It's going to be delocalized, decentralized. It's going to be internalized. It's in spirit and truth. That's true worship. He doesn't say there's spirit worship and there's truth worship. So some tend towards spirit worship. They're more emotional. They don't like to think thoughts about, about God and his character and his ways and his promise. They're not such good readers, but they know it when God reaches down and just grabs them and holds them. And now, there's something very right about an intimate experience of God communicating his nearness to us. And sometimes we feel it, but we should feel it primarily through what we know, what we believe, what he's promised. You don't need to feel his loving arms around you when you can look at the cross and see it, believe it, apprehend it, grab it. Sing with your spirit, sing with your mind also. What verse 2 says in Psalm 92 is that we should be declaring his steadfast love his faithfulness, declaring it, talking about it, describing it. There are different ways the Psalms talk about this concept in praise. They say that we should tell, that we should proclaim, that we should say. And sometimes it says that we should ascribe. Ascribe is an old word. What it means is describe to someone. You put attributes and contours and edges in ways and wonders upon the one that you are describing. You're not just describing and it's theoretical. You are ascribing not to give him those attributes but to acknowledge what's already there from what he has shown, what he has said. Which means then that praise is communication. It's truth. It's, in part, information. It's to be specific. Specific to God. Specific in a declaration to the world. And to each other. Sometimes the Psalms call on the whole world. Let the earth praise you, O Lord. O islands and coastlands. You nations, bow before him. Sometimes the Psalms call on God's people to do it. 
Remember, they were songs for God's people. So God's people would be singing songs to God's people about praise to God. No surprise then that Colossians 3.16 in the New Testament says that we should let the word of Christ dwell richly in us. See, it's word-based. It's truth-oriented. Teaching and admonishing one another, Paul says. What? And that's how we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? With thankfulness in your hearts to God. He says, hearts to God and to each other. You should teach and admonish one another in songs. Our songs should be instructional. They should be descriptive and rich. We can't afford to just describe how we feel about God. That might get you excited, but I'd rather tell you about what he's like. And we tell it to him, and we tell it to each other. There's a vertical dimension to our praise, our singing on Sunday morning, and there's a horizontal dimension to our singing on a Sunday morning. We couldn't have done this alone in our cars with our praise CD going. We need each other. And we're supposed to hear each other. Yes, I know that that means we should probably try our best to hit the notes and that sort of thing. But, but you know, making a joyful noise out of the Lord sometimes can just be noise and joyful. And, and it can be helpful. It can be encouraging to hear those around us. To hear them describe what we have in common. Who he is. What he's done. His steadfast love and his faithfulness. That's when we're together. We could call that corporate worship, but there's also something of constant worship here in Psalm 92. Notice it says in verse 2, we should declare his steadfast love in the morning and his faithfulness by night. Morning and night or evening. Now, some have taken this literally. Charles Spurgeon, many years ago, wrote a devotional Uh, He first wrote the morning, I believe, and then later he wrote evening, and now you can get it in all kinds of different editions and modern uh, abridgments or, you know, modern language. I really encourage you to to get one of those, morning and evening. It's just that. It is a morning devotional and an evening devotional for a specific day. It's okay. You don't have to do one of them if you don't want to. But there it is. Spurgeon thought it was good to begin the day thinking about the Lord and end the day thinking about the Lord with a quick meditation. The Book of Common Prayer in the Anglican tradition does the same thing. They have morning prayers. They have evening prayers. That's not at all a bad thing. It's a good thing to begin the day thinking on the Lord, to end the day thinking on the Lord. But when Psalm 92 speaks of evening and morning prayers, it's bracketing the whole day. It's saying... Morning, describe his loving kindness. Evening, his faithfulness. And everything else, who he is and what he's done, scatter it throughout the day, morning and evening, all the time. Just like when the Psalms say, seven times a day I praise you. That doesn't mean uh, you've only done six today, you better do your seventh. Seven's a, a number of completion a lot of times in the Bible, and so it means... I constantly praise you. Wouldn't be a bad thing to do seven. To think, yeah, I, I've spent seven different, taken seven different opportunities today to praise him. But it's more constant than that even. It's like Deuteronomy 6. 
that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our might, and the commands which God gave us should be on our heart, and hence we should teach them to our children diligently when we sit in the house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. And you should put them on your hand, and you should uh, stick them on your forehead, and you shall write them on your doorpost, and put one on the gate so you see it there. You need constant reminders that he's the Lord, and there's none besides him. And he's spoken. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do it. We should do it to the glory of God. We need both corporate and constant Worship, And when it's corporate, it should be making music alongside it. Verse 3, making music with the lute and harp, making melody with the lyre. Now, I could show you pictures of a lute and a harp and a lyre, and you say, oh, okay. So these are just old instruments. I don't think the goal is that we use these old instruments, but I think that the Bible is telling us to use instruments. Psalm 150, the very last psalm, first calls on all of creation to praise him, and then it just lists a bunch of instruments that should praise him. It seems like God is interested in breadth and diversity, even in the musical, melodic accompaniment that goes behind his truth. For some reason, our artistic God gave us the assignment to write melodies. Well, not all of us do it. Some do it, but don't do it so well. But to take truth and put music behind it, to carry that truth. The truth is, I don't know, like the boat, and you know, the music is like the wind. Uh, there's something to it. There's something about God using it. And God is interested in his truth being carried along by good music and clever musicians with several instruments. So praise is giving thanks. It's singing. It's declaring, ascribing. It's making music. Now, Before I mention the reasons for praise, let's ask if we do this. Do we really believe that the good life is praise, singing, all day thoughtfulness on his love and faithfulness, thinking on his ways and his attributes, his glory, his goodness? Do we really believe that that's the good life? I think most of us would have to say, well, I know I should. I know I should believe that, but, but no, I, I don't. I don't live that out. So let's talk about the reasons for praise and see if we can get some clarity about why we don't praise like we should. We can get some motivation, some traction to seek praise. The first reason, we've already talked about it, but just briefly, I said we would come back to it, the first reason for praise is that it's good. Verse 1, it's good to give thanks. It's good to sing praises. So what does it mean that it's good? This isn't a simple thing because words are complicated little things, aren't they? The word good, what does it mean? 
Well, for starters, it's not good enough. The word good isn't good enough. Because a lot of things are good, even in the English language, in modern English usage. Anything can be good. You can have a good day. You can have a good meal. You can have a good wife. You can be a good person. It can be a good sunset. You can have a good job. You can have good health. You could get good education. And you can say that was a good movie. Those things carry different weights, don't they? A bad movie is not the same thing as a bad wife. (laughs) And in the Bible, there are a lot of things that are called good. The Bible begins on this theme. God creates and it's good. Six times he creates something and says it's good. Creates something and says it's good. And then it gets to the seventh one in Genesis 1. He gets the end before he creates man, and behold, it's all very good. Same Hebrew word as what we see in Psalm 92. That it's good to give thanks. God's creation's good. Giving thanks is good. In Psalm 73, it's good to draw near. In Psalm 109, God's love is good. That's a big good. He is good, Psalm 119, and he does good. And in Psalm 133, it's also good that brothers get along. Now, we don't do so good or goodly on that one of getting along, of unity and peace being among us. Well, we don't do it perfectly, but God is perfectly good, and he does perfectly good. Remember the way... That Jesus talked about goodness, what is good. In Luke 18, the the rich ruler comes up to Jesus and he says, Good teacher! Jesus blows the whistle. Time out. He said, Why do you call me good? There is one who is good. Only God is good. And Jesus wasn't saying he isn't good. He was in fact saying he is God. And apparently this rich ruler didn't get that. Jesus is saying, I'm not good the way you think I'm good. I'm not like a little bit better than some or even the best of the bunch of teachers. I am not a good teacher. I'm God good. There's good and there's God good. And Jesus is God good. So in Psalm 92, when it says it's good to give thanks and praise to the Lord, it's not just good, it is right, it's appropriate, it's necessary, it's commanded, it's required. Because he is most high, verse 1 says. If he's the most high, then it's good to give him thanks. It's good to acknowledge what he's done. It's good to put Descriptions of praise and thanks together to him. It's a holy thing to give thanks and to sing praises to God. Good can mean holy. It can mean delightful. It can mean beautiful. It is good in so many different ways. Martin Luther said, it's not just good, it's precious. And Charles Spurgeon said, It is good ethically, for it's the Lord's right. It is good emotionally, for it's pleasant to the heart. And it's good practically, for it leads others to pay the same homage. It is good. 
Isn't God's good word rich? If we stop to think about it for a while. Why praise? Because it's good. Another reason is in verse 5, his works. His works are great. His thoughts are very deep. His works, his works, his works are all over the book of Psalms. Sometimes specific works are described like the work of creation described wonderfully, majestically in Psalm 19. Or the work of God giving us his word described in the longest psalm of all, Psalm 119. God's works described in these history psalms. Remember these? Psalm 78 was one. There are five or six other history psalms. And it recounts God's works, what he did. Stories of how he revealed his power, his glory, his promises, his salvation. How he showed himself strong. Psalm 93, there's one page over in your Bible probably. Toward the end, it shows us how God demonstrates his glory in basically its tsunamis, in catastrophes. But Psalm 104 shows us that God shows forth his glory in the care, the provision, and protection of honey badgers. His works are manifold. It's an old word. Uh, If you work on cars, you think you know what a manifold is, and that is a manifold, sure, but when we say his works are manifold, we say they are many and diverse and deep and glorious. His works show us who he is. His works mean that he's great, and because he's great, he deserves great praise. So here's something from the Psalms that we say a lot here at Desert Springs Church and sometimes invite you to to fill in the blank, to say the second half. We say, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. It's in Psalm 96, it's in Psalm 145. What it's describing is ideally commensurate greatness. If he's great, his praise should be great. It should reflect something of his greatness. Oh, I know it doesn't. And it will more so in the new heaven and the new earth. When Jesus comes back and when we're not distracted, when we don't sin, when we're not half-hearted, when we're not tired, his praise will be greater than it is now. But we still aim for something of a reflection of his greatness in praise. That's great. So there can be a greatness in skill. It's why we have musicians, and that's why it's not a free-for-all. I know you're really good in your kazoo <laughs> or your harmonica. Maybe you serve time, and you got really good at the harmonica, and maybe we'll use that. And, and, and maybe not, but know that where that gets passed up, it's in service to the rest of the body. The goal is skillful musicians expressing greatness to carry along great truth in service to the rest of the body doing great praise. There should be a greatness in volume at times. If he is great, then sometimes the reflected glory should be a loud reflected glory. And sometimes it should be a 
quiet one. You see, when some things are big and awesome, sometimes it's good for there to be a loud echo. And sometimes it's good for there to be silence. So Psalm 46 says, be still and know that I'm God. There's a time to reflect his greatness with silence, with our hands over our mouths. We could talk about greatness. He's great and greatly to be praised. His greatness can be described in terms of a deep description or, or a, a warm affection. It can also be a greatness of breadth that we want it to spread. We want it to grow. Next week, we want more people, more worshipers here than we do now. We, we want more to come. And we don't want more to come so that we just keep adding services uh, we don't want more to come so that we start using videos for preaching. We don't want more to come so we use that dirt lot over there with a bigger worship center someday. We want more to come, even if we do any of those things. We want more to come because it's a reflection of his greatness. There's to be a breadth and a diversity about his praise. And there will be in heaven someday. So we want to long for what we see in heaven in Revelation 5, a people from every tribe and language and people and nation, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, all saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might. You see the attributes being heaped up on top of each other. Wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them, we're all saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. One day there'll be a giant throng and we will still sing of his works and his deeds for all eternity. We will never tire about what he's done and who he is. Revelation 15 describes that great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. One day we will be glad in his works. And until then, we should pursue that. The psalmist says in verse 4, his works make us glad. Did you notice the verse 4 beginning? In the ESV, it begins with the, the word for, F-O-R. Remember, verses 1 through 3 described praise, gave some elements of praise. And then verse 4 is going to turn and give us a reason for praise. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your works. The Psalms so often model descriptive praise, giving reasons for Praise. It doesn't just say, praise him. It says, praise him because he has. He is. He's done. He has said what he has done and who he is are tied together. His works prove who he is. This is what sets him apart from the other gods, so-called gods. Oh, they have hands, but they can't do anything. They have eyes, but they can't see anything. But our God, according to Psalm 86, there's none like him among the gods, nor are there any who work like you. He works. He is, he 
works, and his works in part define who he is, just as his works should in large part define who we are. It's life. It's the good life. It's what he made us for, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The Westminster Shorty Catechism wrote some 300 years ago, we are to be those who are receiving his works and remembering and recounting and rehearsing and retelling his works and rejoicing in his works. And we don't do that perfectly. And where we don't, as Christians, we should sing for joy. Verse 4 says, sing for joy. In other words, even when you don't feel like it, even when you're not joyful, sing for joy. Maybe you'll start to feel like it. Sometimes hearts will follow mouths just like they follow checkbooks and wallets. John Piper talks about three ways, in fact, that we glorify God in worship. The first is what we all hope for, right? This is the ideal. Rarely is it like this, but it's when we rejoice to worship him fervently. Fervent worship that's happy, we're satisfied. That's how we glorify him the most. But Piper says, we can also glorify God when we want to rejoice in him and worship him fervently, but we have to ask for his help. We ask him to satisfy us in the morning with his loving kindness, just like Moses prayed in Psalm 90, 14. Oh, we know we should be satisfied with his love. Are you kidding? It's infinite. It's glorious. It's purchased for us with nothing less than the blood of his own son. Here's the mark of how much he loved you. He gave his son. You should be satisfied with his love. And, and yet we need to pray Psalm 90, verse 14. A lot of the time, satisfy me with that love. I don't feel like singing right now. I don't have joy right now. We can glorify him when we rejoice, when we want to rejoice in him. And thirdly, Piper says we can glorify the Lord in worship when we repent for not even wanting to worship or enjoy. And then we ask for his help. Obviously, the first one is the ideal. We shouldn't be content with two or three, week in, week out, never getting more into a two, into a one. But... Praise God. He's so merciful. He's so merciful. We can acknowledge our weakness before him. We can repent of short-circuited feelings and lazy thinking. We can ask for his help. Praise him because it's good. Praise him because he works marvelously and his works make us glad if we ponder them. And praise him because we should sing for joy. It's the pathway not just to his proper praise, but also to our fullest pleasure. But Psalm 92 here takes a turn. The third thing in your notes is the alternative to praise. These last two will be rather quick as we see two different pictures. One bad, one good. The first, the alternative to praise. What about those who don't like praise, won't pursue praise? Verse 6, the stupid man cannot know. The fool 
cannot understand this. In the Hebrew, it's the brute or the beastly-like man. He doesn't know. That's the difference between men and women and beasts. You see, humankind was made to praise. They were made to be religious. Beavers and bears, I don't know, they might have feelings, but none of them worship. They haven't made up some bear god or beaver god. They don't worship. They're not spiritual beings. Human beings are. But when human beings abandon that or when they try to suppress that, they are animal-like. And that's what Psalm 92 verse 6 is saying. The fool is beast-like. He doesn't understand. He doesn't see. He cannot understand. But don't think that when it says he cannot understand, that's an innocent ignorance. It's actually a willful ignorance. We're all born this way. And before Christ, we all, to varying degrees, in various ways, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We're all animal-like, even while some of us are religious. Psalm 32, God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I'll counsel you with my eye upon you. So don't be like a horse or a mule without understanding. You've got to lead them with a bit and a bridle in the mouth. And you, you don't counsel them. You don't, you don't like articulate something. We need to go over there because we need to get this stuff. And come on now, let's cooperate. No. They know sticks and they know bits. That's it. Don't be like a horse. Don't be like a mule. They don't stay near you unless there's a bit in the mouth. Stay near God. Stay near his instruction. Don't be animal-like. Seek him today while he may be found. Seek his love and receive it as it comes in Jesus Christ. The alternative is a short, empty life. Verse 7 says the wicked sprout up, sprout up like grass. They flourish for a while, but then destruction they perish. Verse 9, they're scattered. They're doomed. So seek him while he may be found. Do what Psalm 90 says. Consider the power of his anger and his wrath. Consider how heinous and backwards, flipped upside down and crazy it is to ignore his praise or to twist it into your own making. What hope have we? Well, Jesus came that we might have life. He said this, I came that you might have life and life abundantly. The good life, the forever life, the glory life. How do we get there though? Because we're not good at recognizing it. We're not good at seeking it. When we've gone astray, we've besmirched his glory. Well, the very next verse of John 10 I've come that you might have life and have it to the fullest. But here's what you need to do, X, Y, Z. No. The next verse is, I am the good shepherd, and I lay my life down for the sheep. He came that we might have life and life to the fullest, and he gives this life by giving his own life for us. That's a shepherd. That is glorious. That's a story for you. And it's true, and it's real. 
And it's the crowning work of our God as we praise him and remember his works. But remember, we remember that he's not done. And so, as I said, the psalm ends with another picture. A picture painted for us of the good life. We could call it the results of praise. The alternative to praise is stupidity, foolishness, being animal-like, and eternal destruction. Jesus came that we might have real life, and those forgiven in him, those who know his sacrifice, those who are now in the sheep pen of the good shepherd, those who have known God's praise have certain things that describe them. Verse 10, God exalts their horn like that of the wild ox. A weird way of putting something. What is that? Well, a horn is a symbol of strength. They're strong, even if they look weak. A horn is also a container that's used to pour oil back in those days. And, of course, the rest of the verse, God pours fresh oil over those who know forgiveness, those who see his glory. Fresh oil is a symbol of refreshment. And God gives refreshment to his people with himself. He is the refreshment. He is the living water. He is the abundant life. It's in his presence that there's there's the fullness of joy. And at his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Sometimes he doesn't refresh us with a better job. Sometimes he doesn't refresh us with an easier family. Sometimes he doesn't refresh us with more money. Sometimes he doesn't refresh us with healing. Sometimes he refreshes us simply with himself and his word and that word communicated to us. He is our delight. Delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in his law, Psalm 1 says. And You'll be like a tree. Remember Psalm 1? You'll be like a tree planted by rivers of water that bring forth its fruit in its season. His leaf doesn't wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They'll be like the chaff which the wind can just drive away. Well, there's something tree-like about the righteous in Psalm 92. Verse 12 says... Righteous flourish like the palm tree. They grow like the solid cedar in Lebanon. They're planted in the centerpiece of the house of the Lord. They're in his presence. They flourish in his courts. They're safe in his presence and in his house. And they still bear fruit like the Psalm 1 man now late in years. In old age, they still bear fruit. They're ever full of sap and green. Uh Oh, this isn't talking about physical vitality. They may stop making kids. They may feel achy and rickety, but they will be spiritually vital and alive and refreshed and safe. So Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, we don't lose heart because even though our outer man is wasting away, our inner man's being renewed day by day. We don't look at the things which are seen. The things which are seen are temporary. The things which are unseen, that's what's eternal. That's what God's working on. 
One day, body and soul will be fixed in one. In the meantime, in God's mysterious providence, he's planned that though the righteous flourish, sometimes they die and die of painful diseases. And sometimes they face horrible enemies. Sometimes their testimonies are maligned. But the Lord satisfies them with his loving kindness. That they would declare. That's how it ends. Verse 15. Oh, these old trees in God's kingdom. They declare that the Lord is upright. That he's a rock and there's no unrighteousness in him. They give thanks. They sing his praises. They declare. They ascribe. Because he's good. He's done good. And it is good to give him his praise. The alternative is stupid, foolish, temporary, and hell-bound. But he has done marvelous things that we can taste and see. He's good. Would you bow with me? And Lord, we want to acknowledge who you are and what you've done, and we want to do that maybe for the first time for those who aren't Christians, aren't Christians yet. Perhaps even today your eyes have, uh, their eyes have been opened and you've given faith. For Christians here, Lord, we pray you would show us more of your glory. You would give us a hunger for your word. You'd keep us panting like a deer does for the water brook, panting for you, O oh God. Our souls would long for you and thirst for you that we would long for your presence to be desperate to seek you. Lord, give us your glory. Show us your great ways. Lord, help us to confess how great you are and that you've done great things. Lord, help our minds and our hearts to reflect something of your greatness. Help our lips even now as we sing of your greatness to reflect something of it. May it be so. For you are good. You do good. Amen.